0: Hello and welcome to You Should Hear This, a podcast for the Everyday Association professional. I'm Nick Estrada, your host. In today's episode, we talk about an experience just about every one of us has had. You've been given a huge project because everyone trusts you. You sit back down at your desk and immediately think, why did they give this to me? We often use phrases like, fake it till you make it, and this ain't my first rodeo, but these are ways to mask some of our own professional insecurities. That's right, today we will discuss imposter syndrome how it makes us weaker and what we can do to raise ourselves up. Joining me today are two of our very own imposters. Their words, not mine. First up is Alicia Skulamowski, CAE, Member Services Manager for the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. She joined the organization in October, 2019, but prior to this, she was with the Global Business Travel Association as Manager, Volunteer Engagement, and the Society of Tribalologists, and lubrication engineers for over 10 years as a senior manager governance and member experience and second we have brandon j craig cae program and partnerships coordinator for the sierra sacramento valley medical society brandon is a 10-year association veteran having done the bulk of his work in membership events and programs he joined his current organization during the pandemic and launched a program helping to lessen the stigma in discussing death and advanced care directives He earned his MPA in 2013 and CAE in 2019. So welcome to you both. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having us. us. Yeah, so before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of our topic, just do you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and um, why you're excited to to share this topic? Alicia, let's start with you. Great.
1: So uh, yeah, I have been in the association industry, oh my gosh, for like 12 years now and kind of fell into it, I think like everybody does, right? Um, But I've had an experience kind of all over the place, everything from working in governance and membership to volunteer management and even preparing for meetings and all of these other things. So it's kind of run the gamut. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely an interesting journey so far, but I, I mean, I, I sounds so terrible to say, but I love association work and I love the opportunity to do something like this because I remember starting out, I was like, these people, oh my gosh, they're so interesting. And like, they know so much and I'll never be there. Hence imposter syndrome. Right. So <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's kind of why I agreed with Brandon to do this, this podcast on imposter syndrome, because pretty sure I think, yeah, we definitely have it both of us, but if someone else thinks that we know what we're talking about, then maybe I should trust that.
2: <laughs> so. Absolutely. Brandon? Yeah, so I just want to start off by saying that I think Indiana is doing it pretty well. If they had to come out to Chicago for for Alicia and California for me in order to find a couple <laughs> people who are clearly faking everything they do, um, so I, I've been in associations for ten years now. I started out, you know, at the administrative assistant level and have been doing a handful of different things. Bulk of what I've done, as as you had mentioned, was in, in membership. I spent four years at a, we called it a boutique association management company. There were just uh, seven of us on staff there. We managed just two full service clients and four or five event clients. And so each of us were able to get our hands into pretty much every aspect of association work. And so that really helped in getting to my CAE and Getting uh, accepted into the American Society of Associations Next Gen Summit, uh, which is where Alicia and I met, um, and and yeah, like Alicia said, I'm I've really enjoyed doing association work over the years. Some of the people that you'll meet on staff and and on the boards are just incredible. Uh, I work with physicians now, and they are so caring and so dedicated and throughout the pandemic, they've just been gung ho about getting out and helping everyone. And that's one of the things that helps at the end of the day, you know, when you've got all your friends going into the private industry and making eight times as much as you, you know, at least you get to go home at the end of the day and be like, you know what, I'm helping people actually make real differences in in society. And I think for me, that's one of the big reasons why I'm still in the industry. Awesome.
0: So... I think it's very interesting when we reached out to both of you to kind of help lead this podcast as the experts. Uh, I believe the initial response was from both of you. I don't know if we can do this. We're not the experts. Uh, we don't, we, we definitely can't do this. No way. Uh, and even throughout the entire process, I, I mean, the number of emails uh, jokingly I've gotten from you guys of, okay, I think this is enough or, oh no, we need to add a few more things. Uh, so before we talk about any of the specifics, I'm just curious, where does that mindset come from for both of you? Um, because from my side, clearly you guys have it together and you guys are the experts on this.
2: That's a, that's a heavy question. Um, (laughs) and we're going to talk a a lot about that. Imposter syndrome can come from so many different places and it could come from, uh, within you, it can come from the situation that you're in. And for, for me, I don't know exactly when it started to set in. I think it was sometime in college because I was one of those kids who in high school, I just kind of like understood everything. I didn't need to study much. I was doing all sorts of advanced placement classes, AP classes. And then I got into into college and it wasn't the college I wanted to go to at first. It was one of my safety schools. And I was really bitter about that. And it was so dumb (laughs) because my life has been so... Everything good in my life has come from going to that campus, um, going to UC Davis. My, I remember my first exam that I took, it was for an economics class, and I got a perfect score on it. And meanwhile, there were people in the class asking basic arithmetic questions. And I was just like, why am I here? This is ridiculous. But then sometime over the next probably two years, it started to hit me that I am Surrounded by some of the smartest people I will ever meet. And I can't keep up with them. And I think it's kind of stuck since then. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I would say for me, I mean, Brandon's saying he started in college for him. I think I've kind of been this way my entire life. That's so terrible. I don't know what that psychologically means about me. But um, you know, just I was very, very similar to Brandon. I did well in school and was an AP and all these other classes, but I think that was sort of like came from this sort of ingrained feeling of, I never wanted to be the person who didn't not know anything. I had to know everything. And if I didn't, that meant something was wrong or someone was going to be like, you're dumb, or you don't know anything, even from a very young age, which seems a little, a little insane actually, as I think about it, but, um, but always sort of like had that perfectionist sort of attitude and it served me really well. I mean, I going through school and doing really well in college and my life and going through association work and you know thank goodness fell into this because I wasn't sure where I wanted to go with life. so thank goodness for association work. Um, and then just being able to sort of pick up on it. and I think it served me well being that way about how I like I don't want anyone to think I don't know anything. So I'm constantly asking questions or asking to get involved in things or try new roles or whatever just because it makes me feel better inside. So it definitely has been helpful. Um, <laughs> for for my career, but it has been there for as long as I can remember, honestly.
0: Thank you guys. All right, so what is imposter syndrome? I think a lot of people use the word or the phrase, um, but we may not know all the specifics. So can you give us a little background on what it is? Yeah,
2: so imposter syndrome was first described in 1978 by Dr. Pauline Rose Clance and Dr. Suzanne Inez. Uh, they termed the phrase imposter phenomenon, actually. and They just, they used that to describe uh, the sense that you're not bright enough and that you fooled anyone who thinks otherwise. Uh, Doctors, Clance, and Ennis were focused primarily on these feelings when it came to successful women who had remarkable educational and professional accolades and found that societal pressures and early family dynamics had contributed to these successful women believing that they were phonies. And I want to reiterate they felt like phonies despite the existence of evidence to the contrary.
1: Yeah. I I would like just to add on that, like pretty quick summary, like essentially, you know, imposter syndrome, how I think about it is it's about who we Mm. think we are, right? So the way we see ourselves as we are right now in that moment versus who we actually think we need to be to be successful or be competent or be validated or any of these things. It's this, this strange sort of two identities that we have about who we think we are and who we actually think we need to be. And they're probably actually the same thing.
0: Yeah. So it's a little bit of that almost like Johari window kind of concept, right? Like what I know about myself and what I think other people know about me, but I hope that those two things align.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: All right. So who can, who can experience imposter syndrome? So in short, anyone and everyone can experience imposter syndrome. And while anyone can have it, uh, Drs. Clance and Innes found that it was far more prevalent in women than in men. And further studies have demonstrated mm-hmm. that uh, people of marginalized communities tend to be more susceptible to imposter syndrome in our society, uh, anywhere that stereotypes uh, and or microaggressions occur, which is pretty much everywhere. And in all forms of media and messaging, <laughs> uh, you're going to have a breeding ground for imposter syndrome.
1: Yeah, um, kind of going along with you know, Brendan saying is so like, for sure, the environment a person is in can definitely play factor when you're talking about imposter syndromes, like who can experience it. So for example, if you're a woman um, and you're working in an industry or a workplace that's dominated by men, or even a workplace that has a largely female staff, but a culture that's been sort of populated by men, um, it would be pretty easy to feel out of place or unqualified or maybe even um, inferior because of workplace sociological factors. And it's actually, when I was talking before recording, this is Brandon like talking about this. I, I recalled a conversation that I had with my husband that actually caused me to reflect on this a little bit more. So, I right after I had received my CAE designation, I had sort of mentioned like, "Oh man, like maybe maybe I'll get a raise mm-hmm. now because of this because that's what you hear from everybody, right?" Um, and my husband was like, "What do you mean maybe? Like you should tell your boss you want a raise." And I was like, "Oh." no, no, there's no way that I could do something like that. I mean, like, that's just impossible. Like I would be seen as like, that's totally presumptuous and that's demanding. And I was like, it actually gives me anxiety to even think about doing that because I don't want to be seen as being like aggressive, which would somehow expose me in a negative manner. And I remember my husband just sort of being shocked at that. My response of being like, no, 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 no. I I can't do that because he basically was like, you I I would just go in and do that. He would have no qualms about going into his boss and being like, look, I have this credential, give me a raise, like it's deserved. I have credibility now. And it was so simple to him and it wasn't that way to me. Like I was thinking like, that's just, no, that's not something that can be done. And it was funny at the same time thinking about this, I saw a, uh, a cartoon where it had two women in a workplace, you know, working on computers. And one of them has a question like, you know, what's the difference between being assertive and aggressive, like she's writing something and the other one responded, your gender. And that cartoon depiction and like my own fear and asking for a raise when like my husband would never even think twice about that even being something that he could do kind of showcases the sociological impact that environment has um, in terms of imposter syndrome. Um, You know, another thing thinking about it is Some recent studies have determined that men and women are equally, basically, in terms of having imposter syndrome, they're equal, but there are some considerations that affect women more. So, you know, the two examples I kind of mentioned previously, those lead into things that can impact or cause a major obstacle for career progression for women because not only are they worrying about the environment, so their workplace or their culture, um, but they also have the psychological um, impact of the phenomenon that a person has, whether men, women, whoever, however you identify yourself. Um, but you're also, there's another factor that I remember this that came from like my psychology studies back in college, which is sort of the physiological or chemical, um, aspect that's ingrained based on your gender, um, making women a little bit more susceptible to imposter syndrome. So biologically women produce less testosterone, right? Um, And often that is called the Mm confidence hormone. So men are more naturally probably able to push through any fear or that anxiety that they have, you know, based on the testosterone and all of our, you know, caveman esque (laughs) (laughs) findings of, you know, being the, the sturdy men while women, are more susceptible to sort of giving into that self-doubt or that fear because it's not something that can even be controlled. It's there by nature. So it makes it a little bit more of an issue for women. And honestly, if that's all not enough, right? Uh statistically women are more likely to be caregivers um, in their in their lives. So that just adds another layer to imposter syndrome because the stakes are a lot higher. You know, you're not only juggling the self doubt and the pressures from having your professional career but now it's compounded by having essentially a whole other job right which is overseeing an entire person's well-being. So, I mean let's talk about a position that could have really devastating effects if you don't if you doubt your abilities or if you're not sure you have what it takes. You know, I I was laughing about this just now before we start recording is my son is actually homesick. He's been sick for a few days. And I've been running around, you know, before recording this podcast and, and, and trying to juggle work. And I remember saying to my boss, like, I'm so sorry. I didn't answer that email right away. I'm just, I'm just trying to do this. And I know it's not good enough. And he was literally like, what are you talking about? Like, you're stressing yourself out more. And it was like, cause I felt like I was failing or that somehow he was going to be like, she's a bad employee because she's trying to do this other thing and take care of her son while also trying to do emails. And it's not even a reality. Right. But that's how I was feeling just this morning. So it's kind of an interesting interesting thought. So, you know, as we were talking about, there's a, there's a lot of factors, so obviously environment, psychological, physiological factors can all play a part in experiencing imposter syndrome, but there are also some other things like family dynamics, culture expectations, um, and even your individual personality traits. So I think like Brandon said, this is why anyone and everyone can experience imposter syndrome.
0: Uh, that it, it sounds like it's just there's a lot that goes into it, obviously, uh, you know, and something you as your example from certifications. It was interesting. I was at a conference uh, maybe a month or two ago now and somebody else was mentioning, you know, she's the only person on her staff that does meetings. Right. She's the one who runs them. And she um, had just gotten her certified meeting professional Um uh, designation, and they were in a meeting, and they turned to her. Finally, she says, and they said, "Well, ask ask her. She's the expert." And she was like, "Well, I was the expert yesterday before I got my designation as well, um, but now, yeah, I have some credentials behind it, right?" And I think that that's just such an interesting dynamic that I don't know about the two of you, but I feel like in the association world, we've kind of pushed this: we're not experts on it until we have that designation behind our name, even though. You know, Brandon, you're a ten-year veteran in the work you've been doing, and you didn't need those letters to be an expert, but it obviously adds some oomph behind it, right? So, if if uh, if I were going to webMD my imposter syndrome, what are some of the the symptoms that um, our listeners, our association professionals, right, what can they be looking for to help self-diagnose at least that they might be experiencing this?
2: Yeah, so imposter syndrome can manifest in several ways. Mental health is definitely impacted and often anxiety and depression go hand in hand. Uh, there's a sense of shame that, you, or, or, or that you'll be discovered as a fraud and largely a lack of self-confidence. And so some of, some of the other aspects are that you're likely to have very sensitive or you're likely to be very sensitive to even constructive criticism. Uh, you'll have negative talk about your own abilities or expectations expertise, potentially to the point of self-sabotage or berating your own performance, Mm. Uh, feelings of self-doubt or unworthiness, fear that you're not going to live up to expectations, might minimize positive feedback from others by just telling yourself, oh, they're just being nice. It's nice that they care about me enough Mm. to lie to my face. Um, (laughs) There might be an inability to accurately assess your own skills or capabilities. Um, You might be overachieving, but still disappointed when you fall short on, on challenging goals that you set for yourself. Uh, You might end up not trying. You could go the other way. You might not try out of social paralysis or for fear of failure. Um, You might start distrusting others um, or potentially the most dangerous. uh, You might start attributing your success to external factors or luck. And you Mm -hmm. might not really think that it's something that you had to do with it. And so before we get too far, I want to remind people that even though imposter syndrome itself is not recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, or the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, many of the symptoms are. So if you have anxiety or depression, Mm -hmm. I fully recommend that you speak with a mental health professional to put together a treatment plan to help personally to, to, you know, put everything out there to make people feel a little bit more comfortable with it. Uh, I'm on a regimen of counseling sessions, mindfulness practices and anti-anxiety medication. And I can tell you that it has been extremely helpful. So if you're having any of those feelings, I fully recommend that you, that you speak with someone who's who's qualified and someone who's, you know, a professional on this. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I think that's great that you even mentioned seeking that, that assistance, right? It's, it's not, you have to be in like this dire moment of need, right? Just having that outside perspective, I think, to help point out, right? Like what you're feeling is valid and here's a new way to think about it, right? So to your point, right? They're not lying to your face. They're just telling you the truth, Uh, you know, and that little bit of a switch and you're like, oh, maybe they are, maybe they are telling me the truth. All right. So when we think about the different ways imposter syndrome can manifest. Um, Are there, well, not even are there, you guys sent me some notes and I appreciate, uh, and I found this very interesting as I was doing the the pre-reading of just the different kinds of ways that you can kind of classify um, imposter syndrome. So would you guys maybe briefly be able to go through um, the different types of imposter syndrome that, that are out there and kind of maybe how those, those ones manifest and what they impact.
2: Yeah. So Dr. Valerie Young has done extensive work on imposter syndrome over the course of her career, and she's identified five categories. And before we break down each of those categories, I want to emphasize that it's possible to fall into more than one category at once, and further that you might fall into different categories at different times. So we're going to have some examples here for you. And as we're going through, you might start thinking, oh, well, this also sounds kind of of similar to this other category. And it's because they're you're going to be able to fall into more than one at a time.
1: So I think it is probably appropriate. The first category to talk about is what's called the perfectionist. So clearly this is something that I relate to (laughs) very strongly. So um, as you might imagine, someone who's the perfectionist, they set really high goals for themselves. And actually they set goals that might be even impossible ones. um, And such as having to have everything be exactly 100% perfection, if it's not you're a total failure oh you got a 99 out of 100 you're the worst like this is this is what happens with, with someone who's a perfectionist so to kind of put it into uh, an association context like say you're a director of membership you have two employees that you supervise and it's you know renewal season for membership um, your board of directors sets a goal for you of an 83% retention rate and the highest um, retention rate that your organization have is 86%. So there's your standards. As a perfectionist, you might take a look at like the outstanding renewals and all that and say, you know what? No, 90% is the goal. That's the goal that we're going to aim for. And you become so sort of enamored or fixated with that 90% mark, which honestly is probably clearly unreasonable, um, that you start to experience things and doing things like a control freak, um, things that you should be delegating to your employees, like such as like simply drafting emails or making some follow-up room calls, those are staying on your desk. You're not letting go of them. You're hanging on to them um, and saying, you know, I'm going to do it myself. It's not that your employees are bad. Um, You just have a very particular way that you want things done. And it's just easier if I do it myself than have to explain it to anybody. Like, I'll just take care of it myself. It's fine. We'll save time. Great. Um, But when you actually do try to delegate stuff out to them, you are super involved. And you sort of give them directions on how to handle every single step, just to make sure, you know, make sure they're doing it right. Um, You know, and everything is consistent, even if you're actually slowing them down. So all of the things you're talking about is like, oh, I'll just get it done. And and, and this is how to do it in your mind, thinking like, this is going to be great. And this is how it should be done. You're actually kind of being counterproductive. Um, You know, once you've gone through all of this, it's the end of renewal season. You have an 86% percent retention rate. So you've matched the highest that your organizations have. Um, you know, your board is ecstatic. Your executive director is super happy with your performance. Your employees that are on your team are happy, but they're probably like, thank God this is over with right now. Um, but you know, you're sitting in your office sort of besides yourself thinking like it's not 90%. I failed, like I, I saw that we were gonna be able to do this. I saw the path to that, like, this is gonna happen. So you know what, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna evaluate everything and make sure that I'm proving every single aspect of this because clearly I failed, you know even though it's completely unrealistic number. Um, so this kind of sounds like you which it does a little bit to me, you're, you're the perfectionist. You know, your board only wanted 83%. You exceeded that goal. Everyone is happy with you. You know, things are better than they've ever been. Um, but you're just, you're sort of still hanging on to that. So I think the thing that's important to acknowledge when you're a perfectionist in terms of imposter syndrome is that you are setting these really high standards for yourself and that it's okay to feel good about the work you've produced, especially when the work that you've done exceeds anyone else's expectations, just because it hasn't met your expectations doesn't mean that it's not enough. Right. So I think that's definitely something. And I mean, clearly, as we talked about before, like talk about anxiety, producing, right? (laughs) For someone like to be a perfectionist. So definitely something to remember with. But, you know, Brandon, I think you're going to talk about the next one.
2: Yeah. So the the second category of imposter syndrome is what Dr. Young termed the superwoman or superman. Uh, And these are the people who are convinced that all their colleagues are phenomenal and that they're the weak link. So they push themselves harder. So let's say you're a communications coordinator and you're researching different email hosts to use for your association. You've wrapped up a meeting with a prospective vendor at 4.30 and you've finished writing up your notes at a quarter to five and the bulk of your office is already chatting up about their evening plans and they're gonna head out right at five o'clock. You're impressed that they wrapped up all of their work already. And even though you're at a natural stopping point for the evening, you start researching the next prospective vendor. Now you're not going to meet with them for another couple of weeks, but you don't want to look like you're slacking off. So you get to work and the clock keeps ticking and then suddenly it's 6 30 and everyone's already gone. No one's going to be able to accuse you of slacking off now, so you go home. The next day you figure that you should get an early start on the day. You say that you're going to head in early to beat the traffic, but really you want to make it clear that you're working you're working hard. So you're there a half hour early, and you're the first one in. The executive director gets in, sees your car, and when he sees you, makes a lighthearted joke that you're working hard. But there's a lot of truth said in jest, and you feel good about that. Now, this might not sound so bad, but what really ended up happening was that you're sacrificing your personal time, you're sacrificing your hobbies, maybe even your relationships, so that you can stay busy, ensure you're being productive with your time, but you've got weeks before those deadlines. You're craving that external validation instead of reminding yourself that even without working those extra hours, you're ahead of the game. You don't want to sacrifice yourself just to make it look like you're staying busy to try to compare yourself to some of your colleagues. They're putting in their hours, you're putting in your hours, and you don't need to go, you know, 110% of what they're doing just to make it look like you belong, you know.
0: So it sounds like between these two they're very similar but the kind of like the driving factor of what causes the syndrome is different right so in the in our perfectionist it's it's internal i'm i'm so good that no one else can be as good as me so i have to do everything and in our second version it's i'm so bad everyone else has to be so much better than me right so i have to prove myself i have to raise myself up to their level
2: yeah exactly this is just one of those reasons why you know, so many people can experience imposter syndrome. It it can affect you no matter what your confidence level is, really.
0: And both of these, really, I mean, I guess, result right in you doing too much work, right? So as we think about like work-life balance, both of these are doing a lot more work than they really should be. All right. What about our next? Okay, one? so the
1: next one is what is called the natural genius. So this is someone who's always understood things quickly. They've just kind of gotten it right. Um, they didn't have to study a lot in school, um, you know, they were the smart one in the class, right? They didn't have to put a lot of effort into things. But when things start becoming more complicated and they don't just naturally get it like they always have, they start to kind of feel ashamed or confused about why that's happening. Um, it's almost like their value as a person is tied into this understanding and mastering things right away. So, you know, probably people who experience this a lot would be, you know, individuals like Brandon and I. Say we were promoted to an executive director position. Um, and, you know, you have a few things you got to focus on that you've never really had to do before. You, and you understand certain areas maybe a little bit more than others. It's just natural, right? So you, you got a great understanding about membership, you got communications, you get governance and finance and HR and all these other things, but you're working with an advocacy team and you're just not getting it. You've never done anything with an advocacy team. Um, how is it that they know exactly which elected officials' offices to approach or which staff members to speak to and which levers to pull? You, you have no idea. Um, you know that you would understand it because you get partnerships and you get messaging, but something, it just isn't connecting in your brain. Um, you've never had to sort of focus on an angle of associations like this before, so you just, you didn't. And Now, as an executive director, you're being tasked with being a legislative and regulatory vehicle. You know, your your advocacy team is working with you and you secretly resent that because you think you should be able to handle it on your own. And often needing help equals failure in your mind. Like you shouldn't have to ask anything. You should know this. Why don't you know this? Um, And when you hear that, that sounds pretty ridiculous, right? It should sound ridiculous. Someone saying like, I should just know this. Um, because no one can reasonably be expected to master of all things, let alone right away. You know, in this case, you know, your advocacy team would be aware that you've never had to focus on something like this before. They, they know your background, they know you, and they would probably maybe be upset or offended if you didn't actually, you know, take on some of the mentorship or some of the assistance that they want to provide you. So, you know, just remember like no one can do everything alone. And that it is okay to use resources, it is okay to delegate tasks, like a person and this shouldn't be so hard on themselves, because sometimes you're just going to need to study up, but it is a total different way of your personality traits. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, like your own individual personality traits can impact how you experience posture syndrome. So if you're just someone who's naturally got it, or naturally understood things, and now you don't you clearly must be dumb. And oh no, what am I doing here? I don't qualify for this. They all know this. Oh my gosh, I'm a failure, right? And that's, that's just not reasonable.
2: And so that actually kind of leads us directly into Dr. Young's fourth category, the soloist. And as you could probably deduce, the soloist feels that asking for help would demonstrate that they're not fit for the task. Uh, and that could qu- quickly lead to feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. And if you're feeling that this might apply to you, you know, reach out and ask for help. It doesn't mean you're a phony. And so I actually have a personal example here from years ago. Uh, my group needed a brand new database and all of the records to add were handwritten. Uh, there oh were several thousand records to enter, but I needed to enter them all by myself. Uh, I felt this internal need to be the martyr and demonstrate my worth by handling the whole project alone. And I did, and I felt good about it until I realized just how stupid that was. And other people had volunteered and they they were simply like, hey, let me know what you need done and by when, and I'm happy to pitch in. And they offered their help. I was quick to be like, nah, you know what, I've got this. And at the end, like, you you know, the, the project was done and it was probably done fine, but it also probably could have been done in a fraction of the time that it took. and. I was concerned about making sure that everything was in there in a particular way. You know, some people like to write in street, some people like to put ST, some people like to put ST period. And you know what, with how advanced Excel is, those types of things are easy to fix in a moment's notice. You don't need to spend all the time entering it in the same way exactly, you know?
0: That's interesting. So the, the natural genius one, I think, an interesting component of that is I feel like a lot of our managers and supervisors feel those, uh, right? You get into this new position where you're supervising people who likely have been there longer than you, right? They've they've run the finances for a long time, or they've done membership for a while, and you're coming in as the new membership uh, director or the manager or whatever, and you, know, you may still be learning. You know, I think that's always what is one hard part about associations, right? We get the concept of associations, but right, it takes us a bit to learn the ins and outs of our specific group. And I think that managers probably think, well, when I start, I should know everything mm-hmm. or, or my team expects me to know everything.
2: And you're comparing yourself to people who have been there forever. Mm-hmm. They, they know a lot of these things because they've mm-hmm. made some of those mistakes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the, the soloist one, I think what's interesting is you guys are describing that is just from a thought process of how, how much wasted time or inefficient, maybe some processes we've done in the past are because we were the ones that had to do it, right? Or we thought, we believed we were the one that needed to do it. No one else could do it. And so uh, we've ultimately said, you know, thanks for your assistance, but I'm going to manage this one. But then as you just said, right, it took you twice as long potentially to do that.
2: Yeah. You know, if I'm not doing it alone, then obviously they don't need me here. Like that's, that makes no sense. Mm.
1: Right. Yeah. It's job security, Brandon. Don't you know that? <laughs> if you take on everything and only you do it, then no one else can do that. Like you're going to be there forever.
0: <laughs> well,
1: That's and, and even works, just from right? a mental health perspective,
0: again, <laughs> kind of going back to the the balance between kind of work life, right? If you're the only one that can do it, you can never, so not even just leave the job, right? That's a whole nother discussion, but how do you, how do how do you take PTO? How do you take time off to go recharge? If you're the only one that can do that thing that um, you've held on
2: to. Well, the easy answer to that for millennials right. is you just don't. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that is fair.
1: Yes, that's true. It, it, it is setting a really, I mean, if you think about it, it is setting a really terrible standard, right? Like to, to sort of, if you're already going to be struggling with mental health because you have imposter syndrome, right? You're now adding this compounded thing of like never having that, like you said, recharge, never taking a moment to take care of yourself and, right that starts to bleed over into, you know, your personal life too, right? Like if I'm a soloist at work, and I'm a soloist at home. I, you know, I remember in my own, you know, therapy session, I remember my therapist saying, you're trying to be the best, you know, the perfect employee, the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect friend, the perfect, you know, volunteer, all of these things. And just like, that's, it's not impossible. You got to like pick one. And even then you're not going to be perfect at it. But if I'm the only one that can do it, everything will fall mm-hmm. apart if I don't. And so it's just a sort of a natural, again, it goes right back to that anxiety thing. Like everything will fall apart Mm -hmm. if I don't do this. No wonder (laughs) you're anxious.
2: (laughs) All
0: right, so how about our our final All right. Yeah,
1: so this, this final category is what is identified as the expert. So the expert bases their values off of how much they know or how much they can do. So there's this underlying sense that if others sense any weakness in your knowledge or your abilities that they're going to expose you as being inexperienced and unknowledgeable and so you feel like you constantly have to train more learn more you know hoard the like hoard up on your knowledge and your skill sets just to kind of give yourself a sense of comfort um you know add those letters to the end of your name right add as many as possible um you know but these individuals also don't allow themselves to move forward a lot in their career because they are never going to feel that they're or qualified enough um, in their mind. So they just continue to do more and more training, but they don't go anywhere. It's sort of like they're stuck in their tracks. So I'd say a good example of this is, you know, you're in a meeting at work, and and someone asks you a question about, you know, if you're doing membership, and they ask you a question about meetings, and say, oh, you know, do do you do you know that? And you say. You know, that's a great question. You know, I'll, let me get back to you on that. The person that asked the question does not even bat bat an And I edit, they move on, the meeting continues. But you're sitting there in your mind thinking to yourself, why, did, why, did, why didn't why why did she seem surprised I didn't know that? Like, does she actually think that I'm an idiot? Is that why she wasn't surprised? Like she must think that I'm useless and that now my answers are not gonna be trusted because I couldn't answer this in the moment. And then what if she tells my supervisor that I couldn't answer this one question and now they're gonna take me off of projects and I won't be the first in line for any new projects. And you know what? They probably won't even keep me here anyway. So you're literally sitting there having a meltdown and you're internally in your mind in this meeting when in reality, the person that asked you the question accepted your response to saying, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you. And she's moved on. She's not even thinking about it again. There's nothing that even made her think anything like the things that you're thinking, because this happens all the time. And it's a responsible thing to say, like, I don't know, or let me get back to you as opposed to just kind of making up something on the spot. Right. Cause that can definitely get you in trouble later. Um, well, that's
2: exactly what she's saying. And, you know,
1: honestly, it's because most people it's, it's impossible for a person to know everything at any given moment. That's just, that's just unrealistic. So but you're sitting there as the expert and saying, I didn't know it. This has ruined everything. All the books, all the trainings, my CAE, my IOM, everything. It means nothing. I have to continue to learn more because I couldn't answer, you know, where's the meeting room? Something so simple, right? right? <laughs> but it is, as you can see, it was kind of like that down, world, down downwind dust spiral of anxiety. I'm sure we could it. I've gone through that before. It's probably why I use that example very well. <laughs> yeah, it's just that
0: constant, right? Like. How, how else could that conversation have gone? And I don't know about you guys, but there've been many times where I, I, I'll leave a meeting and something I've said in that sticks with me all day. I go home and I just keep replaying that. And I'm like, what could I have said differently? Oh, if I'd said this, then maybe they'd say this. And then I would have responded with this. And it's like, I I just play out all the 10 different scenarios and, and where what you're saying, they were like, cool.
1: That was it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And. and- and reflect beside that. I mean, think about it from an, your perspective. If someone, you ask someone a question, like I asked her, hey, Brandon, do you know this thing? He was like, no, I don't know. Let me, I'll, let me look into it. I'm not sitting here going, that Brandon, dumb. I don't <laughs> even know why I'm doing this with him. Like, that's not, that's not what happens, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's so it's interesting to just see the different ways that this can manifest. And, and I like that there are some specific categories and, and I like that you both hit on that, you know, you can experience each of these, right? At a different time in your career or even just throughout different projects, right? Maybe I feel like the expert on one, but I'm the natural genius on another um, or I'm the perfectionist on this project that I'm leading. Um, so as we think about though from a, um, cause I think the best, not the best way, but a great way potentially to help folks that are experiencing this is from the supervisor or the managing level. So how can our supervisors and our managers create an environment, or support staff members who might be feeling like an imposter?
2: You know, I've been in a a couple situations, um, and one was disastrous, and the one I'm in now is phenomenal. And frankly, it's just open here. Um, People talk about how they talk about their anxiety. They're open about it. They, they say, you know, when I was doing this, my first project five years ago, I also was really concerned by the registration numbers and they didn't come in. Or, you know what, just a couple of weeks ago, I did a project on, on a high school campus and you know how many people showed up? Literally zero. Oh, no. But the thing that they keep hammering home is, all right, we tried it. It didn't work. You know how many people know it didn't work? No one, because no one showed up. So let's go on. We'll do the (laughs) next thing. We'll learn from it. We'll pivot. And either it will succeed or it won't. They're very open and honest about how many things they've done that have failed. And it's amazing because of how many great programs they throw and how intelligent they all are. And so when they're telling me like, hey, uh, I screwed this up or like we did everything we could and it just didn't land you know, sometimes you do everything and it just doesn't land. Point.
1: And I think from a manager perspective, just thinking about my own team, um, trying to do the mentorship thing, right? Like, even though we sit here and say we're imposters and everything like that, we can still be there for other people and have the questions. Because if you're thinking, I know where I've been, and I've been in that position before, and I want this person to feel comfortable asking questions and never being worry that i'm going to think that somehow they're less than or that i expect all these things from so sort of setting that standard right with with your team like please ask questions please tell me if you're feeling a certain way you know there are you know i won't say there are no dumb questions but like there are no questions that i mm. will not answer is pretty much what i say um because if you don't sort of put in that supportive mentoring kind of environment, then people are gonna stop asking questions and then things are gonna go in a very bad direction, probably, right? Cause they're gonna just start to go into this imposter syndrome thing and be like, I have to know everything and I can't let anyone know that I don't know anything. And so I'm just gonna do this very quietly and it could not be the way that you want it done or there could be a better way or it could make it easier for that person, right? Like there's all these things. You wanna have that open facilitation like Brandon was mentioning, right? These open and discussions. And also
2: being flexible. Uh, one of the moments, this happened a handful of months ago, so I was still very new in my position. One of the moments that made me realize I made the exact right decision by, by coming to this organization. You know, the program that I work on, you mentioned it, it deals with lessening the stigma and discussing death and advanced care directives. And it's a really great program and it's really cool. But as you can imagine, sometimes it gets very heavy. And dark and gloomy, <laughs> um, and you know, I was uh, I was talking with a friend of mine, and they were putting on a um, a scholar a virtual scholarship dinner for some high school students who were just remarkable. And they he was telling me about some of these students, and it's like, oh my god, that's so inspiring! You get to work with these kids. Meanwhile, I was working with someone on trying to put together a program on how to tell children and teens and adolescents that they're dying. Um, and so I, I went to my supervisor and I was like, hey, this is this is really heavy. Is, is there any other project you can put me on just for a couple of days and then I'll come back to this? And she was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's get you something a little bit more enlightening to, to do. Um, something a little bit more hopeful and fun and she She let me pivot. she put me on a different project for a few days, and then, after that, I came back and i don't it it just really hit home that, that you know there's a certain way that supervisors can manage and keep people from getting too down on themselves or down on their situation um and I think that's a way that you can that flexibility is one way that you can manage imposter syndrome, you know? If they're getting a little bit too uh, down on themselves, just be like, hey, you know what? Let's take you away from this for just a moment. will put you somewhere else. You can work on that. You can clear your mind. You can put your, your focus in another direction. And then when you've cleared out, you come back and you'll be able to look at it from a different perspective again.
0: Yeah, I really like that. So as we look to you know now we've kind of discussed a little bit about what our supervisors and managers can do but now let's look internally what can we do to combat some of this on our own right so we've identified maybe what kind we are we know that it's a thing that's happening to us what can we do not necessarily to stop it but to mitigate it
2: to address it a little bit more head-on have you tried not having imposter syndrome (laughs) that's step number one yes
0: (laughs) Just yeah, don't. <laughs> clearly, we're
2: joking, but a, a lot of these types of discussions or a lot of these types of presentations try to pass something like that off as a recommendation. And if that can work for you, that's awesome. Please do that. Um, but I'm guessing if if you're sitting here listening to this podcast, that that's probably not going to work for you. So here's some other recommendations that we might be able to 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 pass off for you.
1: Yeah, I think you definitely accept that there is no cure for imposter syndrome, right? Like it, it can hit you at any stage in your career. You can have just one small instance of it, or it can be a lifelong thing. I mean, we've sort of talked about that. So I think just trying to take steps to, to combat it, there are certain things that'll work well for you. So, you know, first thing is remember that imposter syndrome usually affects higher achievers, right. You know, who have far higher standards for themselves than other people. So that in in itself is kind of saying like, you're not some underachiever or fraud in hiding, right? Like if most of these people who have imposter syndrome are high achievers, then you must be that too. So it's sort of like a self-reflection, right. Um, And at the same time, you know, imposter syndrome, it's, it's completely irrational, right? There's, there's no rational, logic to any of these sort of feelings or thoughts but it that's what it is so to approach it sort of with a rational mindset might help things so some things you could do is for example like make a list of strengths or achievements and when you're looking at it accept that it's because you are good at your job you are good at your role you are good in your career you know focus on the things that you have done professionally or even personally I mean you can do whatever you think it takes to sort of be able to see that that you can look at and say, you know what, no one else could do this except for me. Like it's sort of a validation exercise to show that you truly add value no matter where it is personally, professionally, however you want to do it. So one way that I do this, and it's probably really silly, but I keep a folder like in my emails and I just called positive feedback. Right. And I literally put any email, regardless of how small it is, you know, even if it was like, that was a great thought, I will put that in there. And if I'm having, you know, any small moment of doubt or, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough. This isn't right. I'm not doing things good. Like I'm just failing all across the board. I could go in there and be like, no, this person told me like I'm doing a good job or no, I did really good on that one project or, you know, all of these things that you might forget because you are so set in that mindset of you're not doing things right. It's, it's a nice thing to have and kind of a morale booster, right? Um, you know, on the flip side of that, um, you can make a list of your limitations. Right. You know, I don't want to say weaknesses because you're not weak. Having limitations doesn't make you weak. It makes you a human being. Um, you know, but it'll help you to identify the things that you can maybe outsource or the things that you don't like to do as you progress in your career. You know, I everybody loves Maria Kondo and her, you know, like downsizing and organizing everything. But she basically said, you know, if something doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. Um, and obviously, we can't get rid of our jobs. That kind of defeats the purpose. But, um, you can then find other resources or you can delegate stuff to make your life a little less painful um, in regards to stuff. It goes back to those things where like the soloist or the people, it seems like a lot of these imposter syndrome types, they don't want anyone to help them, right? Or there's something wrong with asking for help, but there isn't. Like this is why other people are employed. This is why you have friends and peers and colleagues. Like use your resources, right?
2: Yeah, there's there's actually... One of the main tenets of basic economics is the theory of com- comparative advantage, and that's saying that if we work together on these things, you can do what you do best, I can do what I do best, and we're going to end up in a better position than if we were to try and do everything alone.
1: Yeah, for sure, and I think it also goes back to you know, using resources, but it's also talking about imposter syndrome with, with other people that you trust, you know, um, you can kind of help alleviate the symptoms and, you know, often it's seen as taboo. And most people who have imposter syndrome don't really want to draw a spotlight to it by just like telling anyone like, Oh, I'm having these things, but it actually does help because, you know, by talking about it, you're getting it out there and you're letting someone else who isn't, you know, your own internal monologue sort of tell you if you're being rational or not rational about something. And, you know, if they did think that you were phony or fraud or you don't belong, they would probably tell you if they're your friend, if they're a good friend, they'll tell you, um, you know, but definitely get yourself a friend who can hype you up. Brendan is excellent at this, actually, you know, because we're sitting here, you know, getting worried about doing the recording because we're a bunch of imposters. And he was like, no, you are great. And you are doing wonderful. And you know, so much. And this is great. I'm terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. This is and I'm like, no, you're great. You're wonderful. Like, you know, it's, it, it's helpful. Even if it may seem so, like I trust Brandon as a colleague, someone I've known very long associations that he would be like, this is not a good idea. Or no, you're probably doing that wrong if it was a bad idea. So I can trust him when he's saying like, no, you're doing good. Like, accept that internalize it. So yay. Hypeman, Brandon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> very, very bizarre text conversation where it's just hiding yeah. back and forth.
0: Well, and I can confirm. I've met Brandon in person, um, also at a Next Gen program, and yeah, definitely. There were a lot of times that he was just like, "I'm so impressed with everybody. This is so great." And I was just like, "I don't even know what I just said."
1: It's true. <laughs> I feel like people who have imposter syndrome themselves are actually incredible hype people because I know I, I do this. Everybody, I'm like, "You are so wonderful." And probably maybe in the back of my mind is because it's like I maybe need to hear that every once in a while. Or like, what would I need to be able to feel better about my own imposter syndrome? It's like hype you up. You're great. Mm -hmm. But I think people need to do that for themselves as well. Like you can be honest and you can have a discussion with yourself and you do not have to be like, I'm the greatest association professional in the world. Like, no, you don't need to do that. But you can also look at something and be like, you know what? I did do a great job. There's nothing wrong with me saying that. Right. Like you can, it's okay. I think we've all been taught, like, don't like, Toot your own horn or, you know, it makes you sort of like a narcissist if you say like, I'm great, I'm wonderful. But I think it's the way you do it. If you can tell yourself you're doing a good job, like just remember that you're doing a good job. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have this job. You wouldn't be, have the successes, accolades you have if you were not doing a good job. So try to remember that. And I think another thing to think about is while we talk about our feelings and, and trying to make ourselves feel better, but feelings aren't facts. Like, use that as your mantra. Feelings are not facts. Like, they're incredibly powerful, right? Feelings are very very powerful and can drive a lot of things, but that doesn't actually mean it's reality. Um, So just because you're feeling like you're incapable or you're afraid of being exposed as a phony or that you don't belong here or that you don't know anything, doesn't actually mean that you are those things. So, Brent, you have a good example, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So... I just want everyone to remember that life isn't a game of among us. People aren't all out there trying to look for imposters all the time. And even if they do find out that you think you're an imposter, that doesn't mean that they're going to jettison you out of the airlock. Okay. (laughs) It's not the end of the world. And, uh, you know, one of the very common pieces of advice is fake it until you make it. And, and I, I really don't like it. It makes it sound like you're suddenly going to have this epiphany, like in a movie, Um, you know, you're going to be like, oh, snap, I finally reached my true potential and I understand everything. (laughs) And suddenly the world turned to color and it's, it doesn't work like that, you know? And, and I saw someone take a different take on it, um, which was fake it until you become it, which I think is better, but I think that still sends the wrong message. Um, it, it, it says that you haven't been it. And so I want you to fake it until you realize the only person you've been faking this whole time is yourself. You're fully capable of doing this job. And I'm comfortable saying that because you're sitting here listening to a podcast on imposter syndrome. And if you are listening to this podcast, I'm going to take an educated guess and say that you're an active member in ISAE. And that's something that fakers usually don't do. You know, the people who are involved in the in these SAEs across the country, they're the ones who are, even if they're not confident in their abilities, they're the ones who have abilities. And there's that's not to say that people who aren't involved don't have abilities, but the ones who are definitely do. Because you're out there trying to improve your professional skills all the time, every chance you get. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of those people. So... I want you to fake it until you realize the only one you've been faking is yourself. And if if you need another little mantra, you know, my wife has a coffee mug and I think about this a lot. And it says, carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. And I'm not saying you've got to go full Leroy Jenkins on everything that you do in life. But if you're having a little bit of a crisis and confidence, I, w- I want you to think about that too. And think about how someone else in that situation might act. Uh, you know, when, when applying for jobs, I, I often hear it said that, you know, women have been conditioned to only apply for a job if you check, if you check every box, and you can perfectly fit the job description. Whereas men look at it, and say that, well, I've accomplished two-thirds or I've accomplished 70%, so like, screw it, I'll learn the rest on the fly. And if people can do that, why can't you be one of those people? You know, be a little bit, I hate saying just be a little bit more confident, but like, how would someone else who had a little bit more brazen confidence act in your situation?
1: Yeah, that actually is helpful. There's a a psychological and sociological impact of if you go into something like as a confident person, even if it's not actually like you don't feel that way, but you seem confident, then that's how others will perceive you, right? So it is kind of like thing. It's just going in it thinking like, this is how this is how Brandon would do it. I'm gonna go in the room and be like Brandon. And I think a great example of this is actually from Next Gen ASAE's Next Gen, where Brandon and I met. Is you know sitting in his room and he get he stood up and he gave this presentation and it was, or like, just started talking and it was so natural. And I was like, man, this guy is so comfortable talking in front of so many people. I'm over here. Like With the jitters, right. I'm like, there's no way I could do that or whatever. But then, you know, later that evening, when we're at one of the social events, he was just like, I have no idea what I was doing. I'm so nervous. Was it obvious that I was so nervous? Like, I, I don't, I don't know. I felt like, Ugh. and I'm like, no, you are amazing. Like, and so we are sitting there going like, Even if he's not, he seems amazing. He seems confident. Like follow that logic, right? Do that.
2: One of the things I've learned is that if you don't know what you're talking about, just be quicker and louder. And then you're just gonna (laughs) seem like you know what you're doing.
0: That is our real tip today, everyone. (laughs) Louder and faster. Well, Brandon, Alicia, thank you guys so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day um, to share your expertise. Uh, on this topic. Uh, So how can, uh, how can people find you if they want to get in touch with you to learn a little bit more um, about this topic? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, I'm happy to talk to anyone about it. Um, They can reach me via email. I'm not sure if we can share that after, but I'm happy to share, share my details, but email or phone. I mean, I love talking to other association professionals about anything. Honestly, I think we need to rely on each other a lot, especially those of us that are kind of in the middle of our career and probably most suffering from imposter syndrome. Like if we're going to rely on each other and use each other's resources, it's super helpful and kind of an amazing community, which is why I love association work so much. So yeah, hit me up anywhere. LinkedIn, I'm kind of all over the place, right? So.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, same. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. You can, you can email me, uh, uh, I, I, imagine we can put those in the show notes, uh, afterwards, but I'm definitely happy to, to speak with anyone who feels like they've got a little bit of imposter syndrome. I'm definitely down to be your hype man. So if you need anything,
1: <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's know. great at it. Yeah. Let him be your hype man. He's wonderful.
0: <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of you should hear this. If you have any questions you'd like answered or future topics you'd like us to explore, please send us an email at info at
1: ise.org.